This is the Amazon Planet Podcast, Episode 7, Best with Rest. I am your host, Joel Ambanon. I hope this recording finds you well. And thank you for taking the time to listen. Episode 7. Wow. Episode 7 is an important milestone uh, for the podcast because I originally committed to producing six of these things, six episodes. Um, you know, committed to myself basically as a New Year's resolution back at the beginning of 2019 and thinking about what's the purpose, what's the point, why do I want to do it? Um, the original intent was being someone who thinks about teaching a lot and is trying to improve teaching, his own teaching. Um, I wanted to share what I was learning through all the books I was reading, kind of got fired up about reading again. Uh, and just all sorts of different kinds of books and thinking about what am I learning from these books that can help me teach better and wanting then to share them. So there's there's a couple ways I as a, um, get to share my learnings on how to teach better. One is my teaching. So I get to teach here at the University of Mississippi. I'm very excited about that. Um, I get to do some presentations uh, at conferences and things. And then I write some journal articles. But not too many people get a chance to sit in the classroom. Not too many people um, are coming to the conferences or to my presentations, um, or there's a limited audience for that. And also the, the journal articles that I write, they're darn exciting. And if you want to find links uh, to it, you uh, go to AmazonPlanet.com. My resume is there, so you can, or my CV, uh, my Vita is uh, on the website, so you can find those articles if you're really looking for them. But this is probably the more digestible way to um, share learnings that I've come across in the books that I've read and um, just other people I get to interact with, experiences I get to have. So all these ways that I'm learning how to teach better, I want to share it. And that's the point of the podcast and the purpose of the Amazon Planet podcast is about learning how to teach better. And in thinking about the podcast in the first six episodes that the purpose was a little bit more complicated than that but let's let's just get it simplified it's learning how to teach better that's why we're here with the ultimate goal and my own personal goal is to lead people to love others through teaching okay and it's not just for professional educators yes a lot of the content i'm gonna come from a teaching angle because i am a teacher but that doesn't mean that there's not applications for um other fields, um, parenting, I mean, whatever. Any time that you're trying to influence someone's relationship with some sort of content, and by content, that could be very loosely to be like the ability to work hard. Like, I'm going to show my son what it means to work hard at something. I'm going to put things into play in order to develop that relationship with what is hard work. That's teaching, Right, Or you can just think about it like when I did as a high school math teacher, I was trying to develop relationships between students and mathematics. And I put things into place that uh, would attempt to develop that relationship, try to foster that relationship with their ability to do mathematics, right? With this, um, this relationship between students and mathematics. And some of you are probably thinking right now, man, my relationship with mathematics uh, could use some work. Yeah. And that's... That's why I'm, I'm employed, I guess. So the purpose of the Eminem Planet podcast, again, is to learn how to teach better. And so we're going to take what I learned here uh, through the books, through other things, and try to share that through the podcast. And that's what we're excited about. So I'm very excited to kick off this next season, next semester, let's say, of the podcast with a featured book 
Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less by Alex Sujong Kim Pang. And I'm excited for a couple of reasons. One, uh, schools are starting back up, which means lots of activity and lots of work. And I think as Dr. Pang would say, uh, when you have the work, you need to also have the rest, right? And we'll talk more about this when the learnings about why those two go together. Uh, Two, kind of coming off of a rest with sabbatical and then summer. So there's kind of a a decent amount of rest and and different kinds of rest that were happening with sabbatical and with vacations and other things. And we'll talk about that in a bit, about the differences there and learning about that. And just this... um, Overall, this idea of resting is out there. I think people see the importance of it, but I don't think they see how um, detailed it can be. And and that's the cliche that happens when people look at this book. They're like, oh, rest, that's, that's something. Do, do I really need a book to learn how to rest? I mean, I think I, I know how to rest. And like, well, no. And, and that's kind of what we're going to be getting into uh, is that, you know what, people – are not resting well. Uh, there's a problem there, and uh, Dr. Pang really uh, illustrates that point in the book. So I'm excited about the book, and I'm excited about this opportunity to share. I'm excited about this new semester with the podcast, and let's get this kicked off. But before I jump into the big ideas that I'm pulling out of this book, just that quick disclaimer, in no way will I be able to communicate the whole value of the book. And seriously, no way. Like, I put a picture on Instagram of the book and I've got post-its everywhere and the I couldn't put enough post-its in the book to cover all the highlights I have. So there's lots of value in this book. Um, and even if I could, it would be from my perspective. Okay. So in other words, if you like what you hear, go get the book for yourself. Links to purchase the book can be found at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode seven. That's where the show notes are. Or seek it out wherever you buy high quality books like this one. If possible... Try to support your local bookseller, like uh, Square Books here in Oxford, Mississippi. Love that place. All right. This book is organized into basically three sections. The first is like some sort of what I'd say a preamble section, which kind of sets the stage for why you need the other two sections. So in that first section, the preamble section I'm calling it, there's a problem of rest and the science of rest. So again, kind of saying what I said before, like there is a problem. People don't know how to rest and this book will help you figure out how you might rest best. And the science of rest is telling you, well, why do we actually need rest? Like your brain is doing a lot of work when you're resting um, well and there's a need for it. And then also thinking about the kind of work that he's talking about, this sort of creative work, there's a need to have rest, right? There's that partnership that needs to exist between rest and work. And he sets the stage for that. And then again, in part one, talks about stimulating creativity and there's a bunch of ways on you can do that stimulating creativity that he's discovered through his research and then part two is on sustaining creativity again a list of things that you can do to sustain creativity um and we'll go through that in just a second but going back to that initial section the preamble section there's just a couple things i wanted to talk about one is this idea of creative breakthroughs right so Again, this kind of gets into the kind of work he's talking about, this sort of creative work, thinking work, problem-solving sort of work, right, that takes deep concentration, right, in order to come up with a solution. And Graham Wallace in 1926 wrote the book The Art of Thought, and he looked at a bunch of creative breakthroughs, and he kind of developed or he developed this four kind of stages for coming up with creative breakthroughs, 
right? And so the four stages are preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. So preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. And I have an example of that. So you have a problem, right? And so I'm going to go back. I'm going to rewind to my um, college geometry class where I had problems that were given, right? Proofs where I had to, I was given something, given some, you know, conditions uh, for that problem and I had some sort of endpoint I need to get to. And this is with any problem, right? You have some sort of initial conditions or constraints and you have to create a solution that meets some sort of requirements, right? It could be I'm creating a built-in in someone's uh, living room. It has to be a certain height, certain depth, and I have what materials I have available. How am I going to create it under a certain timeline? There's some sort of constraints, whatever. I need to come up with a solution, right? Same thing for going back to my geometry problem. I've got certain things I need to um, accomplish given my initial conditions, right? So, Let's say in my initial conditions, I have some lines, I've got some, uh, maybe some distances or whatnot, and I have to create something that has something to do with parallel lines, right? So preparation would be, for that, could be, I'm going to do all I can to look at my text, um, and, and just to rewind, just to pull out for a quick second, the reason why I'm talking about this is because one of the greatest teachers I had of all time was Professor Isaacs at... Um, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and this college geometry class, it was so awesome. He went in, he came into class, was so excited, it was the first time he was going to be teaching the class, and was so excited to teach the class, and was looking for a textbook that would help him facilitate our relationship with geometry, and he could not find a good textbook. So on the first day of class, he's like, hey, I couldn't find a textbook, don't worry about buying one, I wrote one myself, here's chapter one. And he, and he handed out chapter one to everybody. It was amazing. It was amazing. So um, so when you hear about the amount of time I spent on my college geometry class in this example, it's because of Professor Isaacs and his excitement and enthusiasm for uh, the content. It was just, it was amazing. Anyway, back to this example. So he, we have uh, the text and I'm going to go in and do my preparation, right? I'm going to learn all I can about the line segments, the initial conditions that I have, right? So I'm going to learn as much as I can, uh, seeing all the different theorems and postulates and whatever, dealing with that, my givens. I'm also going to do the same thing for my, where I have to get to, right? My initial, con- my end state, right? My, what I need to prove, okay? The solution I'm shooting for, it, what, what, what conditions it needs to meet. So now I've built these two things up, right? What I have and what I need to get to, almost like two platforms. And if you can see me in my office, I'm creating two platforms with my hands. It's a very good illustration, but you can't see it. And now I'm just trying to, I'm I'm building them up as much as possible. I'm getting them as close as I can, but now there's some sort of bridge that is needed, right? To go from one to the other. And that is where we need the illumination, right? But first, before illumination happens, we need incubation, right? That we have the, as we've done all the prep we can, we've, we've done as much research as we can. Now we're waiting for that idea to happen, to make that connection. Okay. And this is what I did to incubate back in my college geometry days. I just sat there. I tried to just grind it out. I would just sit there and stare, stare at my paper, stare at my, you know, if I had a, there was a drawing, and my beautifully crafted drawing, I'd try to make that drawing as good, and then I would just stare at it. 
I would sit there and stare for hours trying to brute force a solution to this problem. That was my incubation, right? And then eventually maybe sometimes I would get the answer. Sometimes I, and I, I still have my homework from that class because, again, it meant a lot to me. Like I have no and I would write this on my paper. I have no idea how to get from this to this. And I think there's you're supposed to draw a line or something, but I have no idea how to what I'm supposed to do. And I would just hand it in. And Professor Isaacs would write back, hopefully by now you know how to do this. But he's very kind. Um, and I, I did okay in the class. But anyway, uh, so you have preparation, incubation, illumination. So when the idea strikes, that's what happens. Then verification, you're going to check to make sure that that idea is the actual bridge that would go between the two platforms, right? That would actually go from here, here's what I have and here's what I need. Does this idea actually work? That's verification. Now, the argument in the book and that uh, Dr. Pang illustrates and that uh, Dr. Wallace came up with is that we can, we can teach preparation. We can teach how to prepare and how to you know, study and get all that sort of stuff. We can teach you verification, how to check to see if the solution is good. But this, this book is really about incubation to help out with illumination. And let me tell you, Sitting there and staring at your paper and trying to just, you know, will the, the solution to just pop into your head, that's not good incubation. That's, that, that would, what Dr. Payne would argue is that we need rest. Rest would be a better option there, right? But this idea of preparation, incubation, illumination, verification, we need to be better at incubating, right? That our brains are actually good at incubating it, at taking the problem and, and if we've done all the preparation, we've got all the basically all the ingredients in here, that your brain can like cook without you paying attention to it, right? It's like an oven that's working on something while you can do, go do something else, right? And that something else that we can do is rest. That's something else we can do is rest. And the other thing that they pointed out in this kind of preamble section is the this idea of a, D, a DMN default mode network which basically means like that your brain when you're when you're resting when you're doing some of the things that Dr. Peng talks about uh, later in the book when you are resting your brain is still active still active still doing things like sorting things out like like <laughs> kind of doing the filing cleaning up um, and again they have a lot more details and lots of acronyms and things up here the science of of what is happening but which is really interesting stuff. So, I, again, I, I can't encourage you enough. Go get the book. But your brain is active while you're resting. So if you're sleeping, napping, if you're folding clothes, if you're, if you're engaging if in deep play or some of the other things or going for a run, some of the other things we'll talk about later, if you're engaging in rest, your brain is still working. And to trust that. The next part of the book is uh, stimulating creativity. And that, again, lists a bunch of ways that the research is kind of revealed to stimulate creativity. So thinking about, um, so the, the sections are four hours, morning routine, walk, nap, stop, sleep. Some of these things you might know about, like so walking, napping, and sleeping, we can understand that, okay, those are important things to do. Um, and it goes into detail about how you might incorporate those within your day. But we kind of understand walking, napping, and sleeping. The ones that I want to talk about are, quick before I get into our categories, four hours, 
uh, is thinking about the amount of time you can actually engage in such sort of work, this creative thinking, problem solving sort of work at a time. So if it's writing, if it's um, uh, doing some sort of deep mathematical work, whatever, you have a limited amount of time basically. And, and looking at the in history about some of the great workers or great you know thought people or problem solvers of all time like a lot of times they looked at this idea of four hours four hours of deliberate practice or thinking just that deep work that we're talking about well he brings up the point in that section which i thought was was good and kind of hammers home uh the point of the book is that uh Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, talks about the 10,000-hour rule. So there's a study that you know looked at some of the you know most amazing people in their field, and this idea of 10,000 hours that you need you know 10,000 hours to get to this expert this level of expertise. Well, Dr. Pang points out that in that study, there's there's something that was missed there, and you know you can't just say okay. I'm going to work eight hours a day or, you know, from when I get up to when I fall asleep on this thing. And then whenever it gets to 10,000 hours, boom, I'm there. No, it's not like that. Um, The people that they studied, they looked at, they had these four hours of deliberate practice, right? Where they would work on something. So four hours at a time, not, not, you know, 16 hours or anything like that. They weren't doing these marathons. They were doing good practice for us, you know, just, four hours amount of time, right? This kind of magic, not magic, but this pretty abbreviated amount of time, but that along with, and this is the point, along with that deliberate practice hours of 10,000, it also comes, and I'm going to read the quote, uh, there's also not only 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, 12,500 hours. 12,500 hours of deliberate rest and 30,000 hours of sleep. So it's the whole package. It's not just the it's not just the uh, work, but it's the rest as well. And that goes back to Dr. Pang's initial point that there's a partnership here. There's a partnership between the two things. Um, so that's uh, you know thinking about one of the ways to stimulate creativity is to know that you have a limited amount of time and that to use that well. And we talked about that in. I believe episode one, when we brought up Daniel Pink's book, When, when thinking about when we should do certain times of work and things like that. So to be mindful about when we do work, uh, and this is thinking about, well, if we're going to be mindful about when we do work, we also need to be mindful about when we do rest. And so there's also, uh, within this chapter, they talk about morning routines, the importance of those sorts of things that people that do this sort of uh, deep work, they get up early and they have some sort of routine. So as a um, as a teacher, I would think about the importance of routines and knowing that my brain can have an expectation of when we're going to do this kind of deep problem-solving sort of work. So again, going back to our ideas of from when, if we're larks, if you know my classroom is full of larks, which is students that are people that work well on high-focus tasks in the morning, well, I need to, and let's put some other th- ideas together. I need to have a ru- establish a routine. Let's establish a routine in our classroom of when we're going to do this sort of deep work, right? Um, and that's so, and, and I think Stephen King said this quote, that creativity knows where to find you. 
if you have this routine. Like, it, I might be slogging away some days, but then other days, hey, I'm going to get in this routine where I'm doing this sort of work at the same sort of same time every day that it's going to become easier to get into that stage of doing the work kind of work that I need to do. So like if I'm thinking of a elementary classroom of when we're going to do our writing and our journaling, when we're going to do our math work, we're going to introduce new concepts versus when we're going to just execute some procedures, right? And so establishing routines. And so in the book, they really talks about routines and how important they are. For, more for individuals is talking in the book, but when I'm thinking about extending those ideas to uh, classrooms and teaching, thinking about what are the kind of the bones of a day that we can establish and then insert in these kind of, um, they don't have to be the same things, but sort of the same sort of uh, workload sort of ideas. If I'm going to do some highly creative brainstorming, it might be at a certain time of the day. If I want them to um, write on a topic, it might be at a certain time of it every day, that sort of thing. One, And then another thing on stimulating creativity, it it's, seems weird about stimulating creativity, it's about stopping, right? And basically the quote that uh, Dr. Pang uses to illustrate this point is uh, this idea of if the going is good, like stop there and have an identified time where you're going to be come back to whatever that thing is that you're working on. That I'm going to use the momentum that I have right now. Like I've done some decent amount of work. I know what I'm going to be doing next and I just need to execute it. Well, let's stop there. Let's name it, name exactly what we're going to do, and then we'll just come back later and then execute on that thing. And I thought that was interesting that, you know, about stimulating creativity could be stop while the getting is good, right? So don't go all the way to like, well, I don't know what to do next. Well, now stop. Well, then when you come back, you still might not know what to do next, right? Versus I'm going to stop. I know what's going to happen next. And my brain can keep working, but like, yeah, you know what to do next. And then, and then kind of having ideas on how to build out from there versus like you hit a wall, you come back, well, there's the wall again. All right, so stimulating creativity could be knowing when to strategically stop uh, and, and kind of leave your brain wanting more, right? That's like a good comedian, right? Leaves, leave, leave the stage when they want more, when they want more jokes. That's a good time to leave. So kind of makes sense. So that's, that's part one. Again, some of the things you've heard of, you know, walking, napping, sleeping. Um, we'll come back to some of them when I talk about my high five. Uh, part two talks about sustaining creativity. So recovery, exercise, deep play, and sabbaticals is what's listed there uh, are the things that you need to sustain creativity. And basically, are we um, taking breaks from things, right? Um, that's basically what those kind of bigger breaks, right? Not just uh, breaks within the day, more breaks kind of within uh, a longer timeline. Okay, let's get into the categories. So remember, the categories are this. We have high five, so the high five learning. So given that um, no one else is in this room with me, at least I hope not because I've been talking to myself for quite some time, uh, we've got high five learning. So I've got five learnings that I've uh, taken out for the book and I want to attach to the classroom or, or teaching. Um, the more you know, that's thinking back on my own experiences, what I would do differently. And then imagine this, we're going to think about this uh, content with a scenario. 
And then sum for seven, that's when we sum up this book if we're talking to a seven-year-old or if we're talking to my son, Jack-Jack. He's seven. Okay, let's get into the high five. So these are the five learnings that I'm taking out of the book and applying to my life, applying to my teaching. So the partnership of rest and work. And so thinking about we're coming into my semester, right? And so there's two ways I'm thinking about rest and work. I'm thinking about it within the classroom, but I'm also thinking about it within um, my own schedule, right? So I'm laying out my syllabus. I'm laying out my class schedules. I'm laying out when I'm doing presentations and things. I'm laying out all these things and when I'm working. But I also, and, and coming back to this learning of partnership of rest and work, if I'm laying out when I'm doing my work, laying out my class schedule, laying out all those sorts of things, I also need to be laying out when I am going to be doing resting, right? When am I going to do my rest? And, and what does rest look like specifically? Does it look like when I'm going to be doing some deep play? We'll talk about that later. When am I going to have what we call in our house AMA downtime to make sure that we have weekends where we're not doing a bunch of stuff, where we can just be as a family, right? It's almost like a, a mini vacation where we're not you know, running around doing a bunch of different activities and things. No, we are just being at home. We like to call that AMA downtime, and it's a, it's a great thing. Um, another thing to think about rest and work is think about within the classroom, thinking about how... Am um, I structuring the assignments to make sure that we're not just grinding, grinding, grinding all the time so that there is amount of like, all right, we might be working hard on something, but then we're coming down and um, just taking in content, right? Uh, but definitely having a rhythm to the class, thinking about routine, right? Uh, and how we can establish kind of a rhythm to our work, Right? that also involves some rest within there where we're thinking about where are there breaks, where are there opportunities for um, what I might call an opportunity for professional development where students have uh, kind of a release valve where they can get their things done but also have an opportunity to rest and relax and not just grinding them the whole time. So that partnership of rest and work is really important. Uh, the second learning I have is rest is a skill to develop as my wife would tell you, I'm not, I was not, I think I'm getting better. I was not a good rester. Uh, you know, especially when we were, we'd go on vacation and it'd be like, well, what are we going to do? Right? What do we, we got to do some things and not thinking about how to rest well. And so I think I'm getting better at that and not fighting, not fighting how I'm kind of made up. And again, this goes back to some of the learnings from when about not fighting um, my energy from within the day, like knowing the mornings I need to really be protective of the mornings and that in the afternoons might be a time to do some exercise, do some things, do some restful things that can then fuel me up for some you know later work or energy that I need to be either be present as a parent or to do some, you know, possibly some extra work later or to coach a team, whatever, so that rest is a skill to develop and to be listening to what I, listening to my body, listening to what do I need as a person, as a teacher to be most effective. And then also helping my students be mindful of that as well. And so, like I said before, we talk about staying fit. We talk about um, developing that ability to take care of yourself in all those different ways. So if it's 
physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatnot, that we need to be thinking about how do we rest how do we rest well, right? And getting them tuned into that. And that it is a skill to develop and to think like, well, if I'm, I need to figure out, well, what might be something that I do deep play in? Again, we'll talk about deep play in a second. What is something that, some uh, exercise that I can do that can be mindless and that I can get into that might help me sort through some of the problems, give my brain the rest it needs in order to be better when I come back to the work that I need to, accomplish um so yeah rest is a skill to develop the other thing is movement as rest which you know seems opposite i mean i guess now when you think about it for a little bit you know because some people think well I, I i feel really what accomplished when you know i just fold a bunch of laundry and i feel like rejuvenated because like okay the laundry's done i have a cleaner house whatever you know, movement, but movement as rest and that going for a walk, exercising, even having some like really strenuous exercise like rock climbing or whatever, those can be rest and that how important movement is as rest. And so, and this is not coming like as much of a surprise as, as, um, as I'm making it out here because like we have a a program here, uh, at, uh, the university where we, we we incorporate movement into the classroom, right? And we have a whole program that helps you do that. And where our teachers are learning about different ways and why we do it and um, and how to do it well. And then there's Move to Learn Mississippi, and we can put some links to that in the show notes, where movement is being used as a way to um, you know invigorate classrooms, help them be. Uh, you know, have more energy and whatnot, whatever. But just saying that movement as rest. And so how can we be mindful about incorporating movement into our classroom? Um, I just remember one thing that I did in my class that was, uh, I really, I don't know how I, no, no, I I do know how I came across it. I went to a conference and they were doing, uh, in a high school classroom, they were doing stations. I think I talked about this on a previous podcast, but... um, basically stations within a high school classroom where on one side of the classroom we were doing like more rote kind of procedural based stuff and the other with the other side of the classroom we were doing problems problems around that same content so one side we're doing the rote procedure side and the other side we're doing a problem that would use some of those rotes and procedures so some difficulties some twists and turns in the problems and it's in context right that they were doing over here and on one side of the classroom and the other side they would do the rodent procedures. And then so I would you know start the class, do some sort of warm up and then one side is doing the pro- the problem based stuff in context, the other side is doing the rodent procedures. Then halfway to the cra- class they would switch. And I would man, I would say there's something about the standing up and moving. And some would say, "Well, why wouldn't you just, you know, say, "Hey, now you guys over there are doing the problems and you all over here are are doing the procedures." And I'd say there it was something about the standing up and moving and getting your body engaged. And so there is something about not just sitting and grinding for a 45-minute class period. Because now you think after the warm-up and there's going to be a closer. So if I had like a 45-minute class, it's like the warm-up and closer, maybe that took 
five to 10 minutes, right? So now we're down to what, 35 minutes. And then you think the, the movement back and back and forth might take, you know, five minutes to set up and reset, you know, both sides. So now 35, now we have 30. So now I'm talking about high schoolers for 15 minutes focusing on, on, on problems and then for 15 minutes focusing on procedures, right? And then doing the switch. They can do that versus if I just sat them there and said, for 35 minutes, you're going to grind away at this one thing. And then, you know, eventually maybe the next day we do the, uh, the other, uh, the procedures the next day, right? We do the story problems and the procedures. I, I, as a researcher, I can't really say like, I think they were more productive, but as a anecdotally and as the teacher that was in the classroom, I felt that those 15 minute chunks would be, were way more productive than anything twice as long. Those 15-minute chunks where they were working on this problem and then the 15 minutes on procedures or whatever, like I think that they got more done there than if I would have had them more time. And that, again, goes back to the book of why you get more done when you work less. They were working less, but I, less time but getting more done because it was easier to have those smaller chunks. And, again, this is pulling into a lot of the different things for um, you know the, the having the routine so the routine of doing that switch back and forth, um, knowing that there's a limited amount of time that they can really engage in that sort of thing and putting in the movement, all right? So my learning there was movement as rest. And I think that that point that's made within this book that there's lots of movement, so exercise and walking, um, deep play, all those are, most of those are incorporating some sort of movement and that that you can have movement as rest is a way like, okay, I'm going to stand up and go take a walk and that's going to be my rest. Or I'm going to go run or I'm going to go do some jujitsu or I'm going to, uh, you know, go rock climbing, whatever, like that movement, uh, can be rest. My fourth learning is the importance of deep play. Now, I didn't know much about deep play, and so there's a, there's a lot out there about deep play where there's high stakes and it doesn't seem like it's necessarily playful. And like something about, well, you can go look on the internet on deep play, and, and there's a there's a de- decent amount out there. Uh, Clifford Gertz has some things, G E E R T Z. But anyway, uh, the the example that uh, Dr. Uh, Pang talked about is this kind of this electric giraffe that's at Burning Man. Um, uh, This guy, like, creates this, you know, one-ton, like, giraffe robot in his spare time. Like, it takes a lot. And we would call that as deep play, where there's an activity that's rewarding on their own, but take on additional layers of meaning and personal significance. Like, there's no reason this guy... Um, Lawler would create this giraffe unless it had some sort of meaning, unless it was a, a play sort of thing, like to spend that much time. Kind of reminds me of some of the, there's someone around here in, I believe, Cotton Patch, Mississippi, and they do all these inflatables around Christmas. And they basically set up their whole yard and it takes like half the year to both set up, tear down, um, you know, repair or replace these inflatables, you know, these things that you just blow up, plug in and blow up. Uh, and to do that, to do that, to basically have that as something separate, it's, there has to be a, a sense of play for it. Right. Um, and so 
in the book, they talk about what is deep play and the importance of deep play in that deep play is not something that's, you know, could be, should be seen lightly. Play in general is not something to be taken lightly. Play is so important that we need to play. We, humans are meant to play. Animals are meant to play. We, we need to play. This idea of deep play is that we are not, uh, and he makes this, uh, here's a quote here. Creative people don't engage in deep play despite their high-level activity and productivity. They're active and productive because of deep play. And so some elements of deep play that um, can be present, or, or one of these four should be present when we're thinking about deep play, is that it's mentally absorbing. Uh, it offers players a new context in which to use some of the same skills they use in their work. Uh, deep play offers some of the same satisfaction as work, but it also offers different clear rewards thanks to differences in media or scale or pace, right? Finally, deep play provides a living connection to the player's past, right? So when I think of deep play right now in my life, I'm doing uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, to be honest, it was from another podcast that I got into jiu-jitsu, and it's just, I see it as playful, right? I see it as, and I've said this over and over again, it's physical chess. It's addicting where... It's a grappling sport. Jiu-Jitsu is a grappling sport where it's kind of like wrestling, except in wrestling, the match end is, ends when one person basically forces another person's shoulders to the ground. Well, in Jiu-Jitsu, it keeps going until someone has to basically say uncle, right, to tap out and you submit them. So it's either you've got their arm in a place that's so really uncomfortable and they say, please stop that, or it's a choke, or it's other holds or whatnot, um, shoulder locks, whatever. Places where you could get hurt, but the you tap out and say, hey, please stop, and your partner immediately stops. And that's, that's jiu-jitsu. It sounds, maybe it doesn't sound like fun to you. I think it's super fun. Um, it's great exercise. There's a little bit of danger in it. It's, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's fun, but it's not dangerous. It's good, good training partners. It's not dangerous. And so when I think about some of these characteristics of deep play that's brought up, it's mentally absorbing. Like when I am grappling with somebody, when I'm doing jujitsu with somebody, like I really can't concentrate on anything else, right? I have to be fully present while this, you know, other person is trying to take my arm and put it behind my back, right? That I, I can't be like, Oh, let me worry about work. No, it's, I'm fully engaged in it. And when I think about, you know, does it use some of the same skills um, using their work? Well, kind of. When I think about teaching, teaching, there's so many variables going on in teaching that I'm trying to um, account for, and, and, but yet still being able to react and try to make sense of the world, even though there's so much change happening all at the same time. That's when I think of teachings like this beautiful and solvable puzzle. Well, I think the same is for jiu-jitsu, right? There's no no two body types of the same size. I've got my limbs and my neck and all going in different angles and positions and fingers and whatnot, and the same thing's going for my, the person I'm rolling with, and I'm trying to get them to do something. They're trying to get me to do something, and there's so many variables happening, trying to make sense of what's happening, like, oh, what position am I in? What can I do here? All right, now everything just changed. What can I do now? And so there is something about that, this idea of, I'm using some of these same skills of reacting to environments and trying to make sense of it in order to get towards the ultimate goal of submitting them or versus the ultimate goal of teaching my students, right? Um, and then think about the living connection of players past. Well, when I think about uh, 
grappling. It's kind of like wrestling. I wrestled when I was in high school very unsuccessfully, but it was one of the most fun experiences I had where it was an individual sport. I didn't play too many individual sports, but it was an individual sport where there's, you know, success or failure is pretty clear about whether or not you contributed to the success of your team, right? Did you win or lose your match, right? And then if, and then, but then also you were still a part of a team where you could be battling against each other, but still we're all a part of a group. And like, so I'm a part of a, an academy uh, here in Oxford, 662 Jiu-Jitsu. And like, so we're, we're a team, we're a team together, even though, those are the people I, you know, grapple with. They're also my teammates, and we're all trying to get each, make each other better. And so, and there's so obviously there's clear rewards in there as well. But deep play, having deep play, or having something where you can get totally immersed in it and it gets to use some of those skills and things like that. Um, you know, some people get really into like helping out with Habitat for Humanity. They see that as deep play where they get to go use the skills they've been given to help someone build their own house, right? With Habitat for Humanity or they like doing woodwork at their at their home or something like that. Something people engage in. I've heard other pe- folks doing like Dungeons and Dragons uh, games every Sunday or something like that. I mean, deep play does not have to be building or doing things with your hands. You could still be sitting and things like that. But there has to be something that's immersive about the experience, right? And so thinking about the importance of deep play and doing something like that, like, um, you know, maybe, you know, I was also thinking about, you know, people that, when I was a kid, community theater was a big deal, right? And I would see some of these people that were in community theater, and I wondered, is that was that their deep play, right? Was that their way of doing some things and maybe some of the people in the play were attorneys or actually some of them were teachers and seeing like what what are they doing within that what are they doing within what role is that theater experience fulfilling within their lives and I would assume it's some sort of deep play right so anyway the importance of deep play is something I extracted and so how do we provide those experiences with within our schools, right? And that's where extracurriculars, clubs, that sort of thing, where, you know, and, and helping students draw the connections between what they're doing within those clubs. And so, you know, if someone's doing debate club and they're really good at arguing, well, how can they use some of those same skills in within a classroom, in a math classroom, to say, like, why one solution to a problem is uh, more elegant than another solution, right? Or why, you know, why an alternative solution might be better off for later on within the unit or the chapter, okay? So, anyway, deep play, really important. Vacation versus sabbatical. Uh, This is the last thing that I I took out here, and and pretty important, not not pretty important, pretty relevant to my current situation because I just came off a sabbatical for... uh, for the spring semester this past year, and then I've also had some vacations. And I was trying to think about the difference between vacations and sabbatical, and it seems like a sabbatical is a well-organized break, right? It's a well-organized break where you have specific things you're going to be doing. So for my sabbatical, I had to say, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work with this organization, the 410 Bridge, on some of their education initiatives. I'm going to be going to uh, Haiti and Guatemala and doing some uh, working with local communities and thinking about how can 
community leadership help support the schools and what can Fortan Bridge do to help support their work with schools and whatnot. And it was organized, right? I knew what I was going to be doing, um, different sort of work than what I'm doing, but still using the expertise I have to... um, to help out the, the Fortin Bridge organization. So it's a well-organized break, and I had certain things I need to accomplish. Versus a vacation, it's just a break, right? A break to get away, disconnect. And yes, there was some elements of disconnecting with sabbatical, which were important, but then vacation is completely different. So we went on this epic uh, vacation. We drove out to Seattle and back. And, I mean, it was just a complete disconnect where I was like, you know what, I'm just not going to be available during this and I'm just going to be completely present uh, doing all these we visit a lot of national parks and stuff and it was you know, two weeks in a van with the family and it was beautiful uh, and the dog too but that was different right there was the agenda on vacation was get from spot to spot and experience life together versus a sabbatical there were some objectives that needed to be accomplished and it's still have an experience but it was more organized towards something. Both of them were both breaks from my normal day-to-day work. Okay. So those are my high five. My partnership of uh, rest and work. Okay, the, the kind of the yin and yang there. Rest is a skill to develop. Movement as rest is my third one. Importance of deep place, number four. And my fifth one was the difference between vacation and sabbatical. And that both are important. Both are important for rest. And that we need to be thinking about when we you know, have different experiences that we can have as educators. Like if I have an opportunity to go, maybe it's a, maybe it's a conference, right? Maybe it's a, uh, a week at a workshop somewhere in the summertime or whatever. These kind of organized things where it's like, I'm going to go have this experience. Think of that as like a sabbatical or a mini sabbatical. Versus I'm having a vacation where I'm just breaking. There's no agenda. I'm just, I'm going to just break, okay? And again, more details in the book on those two different things. All right, next, we're going to talk about the more you know. So what would I do differently now that I know the content in this book? And basically the thing that I've recognized and I've started to do differently is... To stop grinding. To stop grinding. Now, it's a lesson I'm still learning. So, for example, I recorded this whole podcast yesterday. And I was having difficulty just getting the words out and really just producing something that was coherent. And But I just sat here and I just kept going at it and it just was not good. After a night's sleep, I came back and I'm like, you know what? I have a clear idea. I know what I want to do. I'm going to scratch that. And just re-record the podcast, and so I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. I, well, I just learned this lesson that hey, you know what? It probably would have been better just to not record yesterday, and to come back, let my brain default mode network right, get uh, put that kick that into gear, which worked. I had a better idea after I woke up to come back and do it better. I still have that, hey, I've got this deadline. I've got to grind. I just got to grind versus, you know what? It's probably better to go exercise, go for a walk, go for a run, do something else that's not as taxing and then come back to that. Do the prep. 
do all the preparation, know what you need to do, have all the materials and stuff ready to go, but then come back ready to go uh, with, and you'll have that better idea about what's the solution to that problem. Okay, same thing might happen for our classrooms when I as well. I'm thinking about for me, we're doing a lot of lesson planning stuff where you know I'm asking them my teachers to create certain types of lesson plans where, okay, have they done all the preparation? If they've done all the preparation and then they're still having some difficulty, don't just sit there and grind with them. Say, hey, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about this tomorrow. And and just knowing that there is something there with regards to letting the brain think, letting letting everyone rest and not just grinding on it. That's that's something that I would... uh, that's, that's something I know now, uh, given the content of this book. All right, Imagine This is about using the content from this book to deal with a scenario. Now, I should have been better about asking people out in the, uh, the interwebs for a scenario that we could address, because otherwise I'm just making one up on my own. But it's okay. So I have some teachers and things that are working with me on dissertations and things and so you know a lot of them are coming and and they're stressed about doing things and so I'll I'll come up with hey are you establishing a writing schedule how are you doing your classes are you making sure you know you're structuring your time well for working but then now that I know what's in this book I would also make sure that are you structuring rest time like really being serious about it. Like, what are you doing with regards to, like, exercise, like, sustaining your creativity? Because, yes, you can hit a deadline and you can grind for a week and, you know, kind of lose out on your exercise time or whatever you do to get physically active. For a week, that's okay. But for a whole program and just completely abandon anything, any sort of... uh, you know, physical fitness or whatever that people have established for themselves. Like, that's not good. You need to take care of yourself. And knowing that the benefits of doing the running or doing the walking or doing whatever it is that you do to get out into the world, right? If it's just walking, hiking, whatnot, uh, that that needs, that's that's as important as scheduling the writing time, right? And so, making sure our students too see that as a value as well. So, and like I would encourage teachers, teachers to model for their students. What is a good balanced life that rest work partnership look like and making sure that parents and students and, um, can see teachers staying fit. Right. And, not, and, and don't just mean physically fit. I mean like doing the things that you need to do to be healthy, right? And not being that, uh, not grinding all the time or being the last one to leave the school or, you know, and there is, and I don't want to disparage hard work. I mean, I know there's people that work hard out there, but we can work smarter and knowing that, just like the book says, you can get more done by working less if we have that good balance of rest-work partnership. And so modeling, what does that look like? And so for me, as an advisor, not only advising them on what work to do, what classes to take, how to advance um, to their degree, um, but also saying, how are you resting? 
and using some of the principles that I've learned from this book to encourage them to do the rest. So that's, that's that. And so finally, summing for a seven-year-old. How would I sum this up for a seven-year-old? I mean, so before Gary Williams had like a whole metaphor that he had established for the power of moments and stuff like that. And I, I appreciated that, like, you know, coming up with a story. I like doing this, some sort of statements that the kids can remember. So I like the title of the podcast episode that we're best with rest, right? Or best with rest. We're going to do things, but we're best with rest. And so thinking about what, what are the things that we do to balance our lives, right? And so even to think like I've got to a scale where I've got work on one side, I got rest on the other, and I got to make sure that that scale is in balance. Because if it's not, I'm going to tip over, right? And so if it's, you know, holding them two weights, two cans, whatever, that could be something that could illustrate that for a seven-year-old. But I think just the, the statement, the three-word statement, we're best with rest. We're best with rest. So yeah. I think we're done. That, that's it. That's all I have for episode seven of the Amazon Planet podcast. And as you can hear, this episode has me talking about myself an awful lot. But now it's time for you, the listener, to engage. And so you're already listening. That's one way. And so here are a few ways I invite you to not only engage, but support the podcast. So you can subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast provider. That could be iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can also follow the podcast on Spotify. I know there's also Overcasts out there. You can share the podcast. Maybe you heard something that you know someone else needs to hear, so go ahead and hit that share button. Uh, rate and or review the podcast uh, through iTunes or your preferred podcast provider, anywhere that provides an opportunity to either rate or review. Um, like and, and any of those things with the podcast, Anything that you do with the podcast gets plugged into the algorithm, and that just makes the podcast more available to others that are trying to find it. So, trying or trying to find content like it. So, anything you do there would be greatly appreciated. Even if you have a review that's not that great, that's fine. I want to make this better. So, whatever. Any any review is a good review. Um, also, you can like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. Uh, there you can comment. Um, that's probably a really good way to comment or ask questions uh, with regards to the podcast because there will be a, um, a feed or a post for every podcast episode. So if you want to go find one and ask a question or comment, I get notified and can engage in a conversation there. Uh, you can also subscribe to the Amazon Planet email list. And the easy way to do that is through the Facebook page. There's a little subscribe button that will hook you up to the email list. But also on AmazonPlanet.com, there's a little subscribe button um, just down the page a little bit. Subscribe to the Amazon Planet email list. Hit that subscribe button and it'll feed you there. So the, the email list is a great way to not only get updates on what podcast episodes are coming out, but also a good way to directly communicate with me. That's another way is just responding to those um, the any posts I send out through the email list. Also... We passed a milestone, and whenever we in podcast downloads, and whenever we do that, I want to do a little celebration. And so, there might be a little um, caffeine-related celebration piece that comes out in an email in the very near future. So, you're going to want to subscribe to that Amazon Planet email list. Um, there'll be some opportunities for some good stuff there. 
Anyway, you can also reach me on through social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at the handle at Amazon Planet. Even Instagram, I believe, is at Amazon Planet. Uh, we're looking for questions or comments there as well. Um, and if you have book review suggestions or different interview suggestions or anything else that you think would be good for the podcast, that's another good place to put it is through social media. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to episode seven of the Amazon Planet podcast. Special thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who is seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.